0: Father in heaven, thank you that your word stands forever. Thank you that you are from everlasting to everlasting. And so we look forward to hearing from you and pray that you'd help our hearts to be comforted by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So Isaiah 40, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. But the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord All the nations are as nothing before him. They're accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it and and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who's too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these, he who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name. By the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or grow weary,
1: Now, this morning, I'd like us to turn to one of the most encouraging and heartwarming chapters in the Bible, one of the great messages of Advent, Isaiah chapter 40. We preachers grind out sermons every week, uh, but in the grinding out of this sermon, it really has encouraged me and warmed my heart as I have prepared. That's the kind of thing that you might think I should say, but it really is true on this occasion. And let's pray that it will warm all our hearts as we study these great words together. Our Father, these are marvelous words of comfort and consolation. We pray that we will hear them as a huge relief, as a great blessing, and as clarity in our time and in our lives and we pray that for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, what we're going to do this morning is I'm going to spend a good chunk of time getting our bearings in this prophecy, uh, partly explaining what Isaiah is saying, but just setting ourselves up that in the last 10 or 15 minutes or so, as I simply really reread the prophecy With some comments. We'll hear it with the the power that comes from understanding what is going on. Now, let me read to you the opening verse of the book. No need to turn it up. Let me just read it to you. The vision or prophecy of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah kings of Judah. Now, that dates Isaiah's prophecy. His call to the prophetic ministry came in the year that King Uzziah died, 740 B.C., and he spoke and prophesied for 60 years, 740 to 680 B.C., a long, long time ago. And all that he said in his ministry is captured in this book that we call Isaiah. Now, the purpose of Isaiah's prophecy, and broadly speaking, the purpose of all the prophetic material in the Old Testament, and Isaiah was one of the earliest, Isaiah is like an overture to the symphony of the prophets, was to expose, to shine a light to expose the true spiritual state of God's covenant people. And in that period of history, God's covenant people were referred to in Isaiah as Israel and Judah. Israel, the land in the north, Judah, the land in the south where the Jews lived. Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Now, you're in for a treat today. I don't normally have slides, don't quite know why I don't. I'm trying to find a theological reason why you shouldn't, but there isn't one. So here we go. Now that's where Isaiah was, and that's who he spoke to: the northern kingdom of Israel, and in particular, his prophecy focused on the southern kingdom of Judah and Jerusalem. And his big theme was to was to to, to say to the people: "Come on, you you you've drifted away." from God, from covenant commitment. Come back, repent, turn. The other big theme in Isaiah's prophecy and a big theme in all of the prophets is to set out God's agenda, God's purposes for the future. So to look ahead and to see what will happen in the immediate future And then to look further ahead and to see what will happen in the horizon, and then to look even further ahead to the furthest horizon of all at the end of time. Now, the first 39 chapters of Isaiah are pretty bleak, and they culminate in the prophet's prediction that the southern kingdom of Judah would fall to Babylon— And God's people would be taken into exile. Just to turn back in your Bibles or whatever you do on your phones to 39 and verse 5. 39 verse 5, then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, he was the king of Judah who reigned from 717 to 687, he was a good king, a godly king, hear the word of the Lord of hosts, behold the days are coming in the future. When all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon, nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Just to note, the king of Babylon, who had not yet been born, Nebuchadnezzar, then said Hezekiah to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good, for he thought there will be peace and security in my days. Now, that is exactly what happened some 60 years later when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, conquered Jerusalem in 605 BC and took God's people into exile, including Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. We we'll read of that in the book of Daniel. Uh, that was in 605 BC. 20 years later, in 586 BC, the hammer blow fell and the city of Jerusalem went up in flames. And the temple raced to the ground. Rubble. And Isaiah's prophecy in the first half of the book is pretty sobering. It ends in the prediction that there will be an exile in Babylon. It ends by saying, Jerusalem will be in flames and the temple, rubble. And it happened. God's people didn't heed the warnings, the call to repent, the hand of God's judgment fell as they were exiled. And all that was left in Babylon was a faithful remnant of God's people. Some of them, like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, in the royal palace serving the king. Others living in a shanty town by the Kibar Canal, a bit like Soweto on the outskirts of Johannesburg. That's where Ezekiel the prophet was in the shanty town on the banks of the Kibar Canal. Now, from Isaiah chapter 40, there is a marked change. It is a message of comfort, a message of comfort to the faithful remnant of God's people. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Now, I wonder if when Isaiah spoke all these years before and God's people, disobedient, rebellious, listened, I wonder if they would have blocked out chapters 1 to 39 and their ears would have picked up with this message of comfort, comfort, my people, and all the prosperity and blessing that follows in the back end of the book. But it's very different. When you are in that shanty town in Babylon, Jerusalem is in flames. The temple is destroyed. Even Daniel, in the royal palace, exiled, far from home, humbled in God's refining fire. And now you hear chapter 40 very differently. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. And what a blessing and what a comfort these words must have been to the people of God. It's what Daniel would have been recalling or reading in Babylon. These words, he would have recalled these prophecies from Isaiah passed down through the generations. Comfort my people. Comfort my people. Now, what follows in Isaiah chapters 40 to 55 is a glorious message of restoration as God, through His prophet, sets out His agenda for the future. And He does that by pointing to the immediate horizon and then to the further horizon and then to the furthest horizon way beyond even the times in which we are living today. And what we read in Isaiah in terms of looking ahead to the further and the furthest horizon is paralleled in the other great prophets, for example, Daniel and Ezekiel. Daniel, Isaiah, Ezekiel are all exile prophets. They're all prophets that speak in to this period of history, and they all have different emphases. Isaiah, as we read on in chapters 40 to 55, has a particular emphasis on the servant of God, God's suffering servant, who will redeem humanity through his death. Daniel, if you were afflict flick there, don't do it, we don't have time, has a particular emphasis on God's powerful king. That's not a surprise that Daniel has an emphasis on God's king and God's kingdom. Because there he was right next to the most powerful king on the earth, Nebuchadnezzar. Ezekiel, in his shanty town, down the road from Babylon where Daniel was, has a particular focus on God's presence. And that's got an edge to it. Where's God? Now that the temple is destroyed, he couldn't possibly be here in this shanty town. Yes, he is. what you need to do is you need to have a sermon series on Daniel, Ezekiel, and Isaiah at the same time. The king of the everlasting kingdom, the servant king of the everlasting kingdom, God with us, Emmanuel, Daniel, Isaiah, Ezekiel. And of course, God's people through the centuries would have drawn on all three We just take 40 weeks to get through one, then we turn to the other in three years and take 40 weeks to get to that, and by the end of it, we've no idea what's going on. I hope you're still with us. It's big picture stuff, yeah? Now, all these prophets, big prophets, look forward, they have three peaks in view. If you stick up the next slide, there's three peaks, yeah? Now, I want you to imagine you're standing at the end of the one on the left, and you see it in front of you. And of course, when you see that in front of you, the other two are obscured from view. And you think, gosh, it's going to take me all my energy to get up the first mountain. And you eventually get to the top, and you have that, and if you've been hill walking, you know this is true. You get to the top, and you have a big sigh of relief, and then you see through the mist, the clouds break, because it's Scotland, there's clouds, and they break, and you see another peak. And it's higher and further. And then you get to the summit of the second peak. And way, way, way in the distance, with this long, long valley in between, there is a summit that is a higher summit than you have ever seen, as high as Mount Everest. Now, what are these peaks in Old Testament prophecy? Well, I've borrowed this slide from Andy Robertson. In fact, I've stolen it, so don't tell him. Andy and I are trying to work on this stuff together. We're trying to work out how prophecy works, and uh, he's done this slide. Uh, The first peak in prophecy is the return from the exile. So, Isaiah will often be speaking about the days ahead when the exile is done and you will be back in Jerusalem. God's people back in Jerusalem, the city and the temple rebuilt. And as the people of God struggled in exile and listened to the message of comfort, that there would be a return to Jerusalem. I mean, think of yourself in that shanty town with Ezekiel, the gloomy prophet. Isaiah, Ezekiel, saying that this exile is going to come to an end. Jeremiah said it would last 70 years. Do you really think you would have believed it? Or would you have thought that mountain, getting back to Jerusalem and rebuilding the city and raising the temple was a big deal? Yes. You would not have believed it would ever happen after 30 years, 40 years, 60 years? Your parents had died in exile? Your kids said to you, Dad, will we ever go back? You would have said to your kids, yes, son, but in your heart, would you have believed it? And then way down the centuries in Isaiah's prophecy, there's another mountain peak higher still. When you first catch sight of the second, the first mountain peak seems like Arthur's Seat, a little hill. For the second peak has a Messiah on its summit. Now, that's where Isaiah will go. So, here's a famous verse from a little bit further on in Isaiah, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, with his wounds we are healed. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And if you heard that in the shanty town, or if you heard that when you were back in Jerusalem, what would that mean to you? You'd have some vague sense that there was something special ahead. But if God had told you it was 700 years ahead, you would have kind of gone, oh, that's, Eight generations, nine, ten generations. Jesus, born, lived, died, raised, crowned, the all-powerful king of God's everlasting kingdom, a new exodus, a new deliverance, reconciliation to God for all people from every nation of the earth. Remember that slide? Don't put it up. That's just me off script. Remember that slide of Israel, north and south? The gospel goes to every nation of the earth. Remember the slide that you had up earlier? All over the earth. That second mountain peak makes the first one seem like a molehill. And if you were in exile in Babylon and you doubted you'd ever scale the first peak, or even if you lived at the time when the first peak had been scaled and you were back in Jerusalem and the city and the temple had been rebuilt, as you caught a glimpse of the horizon of the second peak, would you really in your heart have believed that mountain would ever be climbed? Or was God just laying out some kind of promise to, to lift your hearts, to lift your souls, to make you keep going? I don't in all honesty think if I had lived there and had been a minister back in Jerusalem after the exile at the top of mountain one, I would have ever in my heart of hearts really believed that mountain two would come. I would preach it But would you really believe it? Someone in the first service was a little disarmed and said, Gosh, do you doubt you're a minister? We all doubt. But what happened? Jesus came. What we're going to read tonight, fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Now, he could have said there, look, we're at the top of Isaiah's second mountain peak. What does he say? He quotes from Isaiah, for unto you is born a son. Isaiah, for unto us is born a son, Jesus. Now, we live in the period of world history where we look back at the second peak. That's what we remembered at Christmas. That's what we remember at Easter. That's the message we proclaim to the world every Sunday, every day. Christ the Messiah has come. His good news is the message of forgiveness and reconciliation to God. He came, as we'll sing tonight, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, that humanity might be reconciled to God, that the sons of earth might be raised to become sons of God, now in the Spirit and bodily in the new creation. which is why you've got a bang on the doors this afternoon. Because in all that's going on in the city tonight, in the living gospel churches, what is being spoken is way, way more urgent and important than anything else in the world. But there is another peak still to be scaled on the right there. And that is the highest and most glorious peak of all. It is higher than Everest, seemingly impossible if we really ask our hearts that will ever come the return of Jesus and the new creation, when this whole world will be made new. And all believing people through the centuries will live and reign in perpetual joy in the presence of Jesus for all eternity. A day when there will be no more dark nights as we wait for dawn. There will be no more winters as we wait for spring. What did C.S. Lewis describe Narnia as? when the white witch ruled, always winter, but never Christmas. The new creation is always Christmas, but never winter. That might fill you with dread. Almost Christmas without all the rubbish, and never winter. Always joy. And it's true that in many people's lives, Christmas brings joy. It's escapism, maybe, but it is joy. And the non-saving, the the common grace of God can steal on their hearts as they contemplate the Messiah's birth, and there are flickers of joy in the new creation. There will be glory unimaginable, perfection, everlasting joy, no sin, no suffering, no crying. But do we, though, in our heart of hearts, really believe that Jesus will come again? Again, in the first service, it was striking. There was a couple sitting at the front there, and they both said out loud, it's very unscottish, yes. But it was a kind of powerful moment because the rest of us, or many of us, thought, I wish I had the same certain conviction in my heart as in yours. Do you hope he will come again or do you believe he will as you consider that mountain peak ahead which makes the first two peaks look like an anthill and a molehill? Do you believe it will ever be climbed? Don't we doubt like the exiles in Babylon? Don't we doubt like the people of God back in Jerusalem when the city and the temple had been rebuilt as a shadow of their former self? I mean, we live in a country where the church is a shadow of its former self. Do we think it will just be everlasting, perpetual decline, or God might revive it? And at the end of the day, do we believe that he will come again, and he will make this world new? Don't we doubt, like the people who lived in these long, dark centuries before the Messiah came, that he would ever come? Imagine this, that for a thousand years, the people of God gathered together at the Feast of Booths once a year, and celebrated the Passover. One thousand Passovers. Remembering the Exodus, and the host would get up and he'd break the bread. And he would say, Remember when God led us out of Egypt and gave us bread for the journey? And he would pick up the wine, and he would speak about the vine of Israel, the fruit. And at the end of the Passover meal for a thousand years, the host would say, Every time we eat this bread and drink this wine, we remember the Exodus, and we remember that one day the Messiah will come. And the little boy says to his dad, Daddy, will he ever come? And his dad said to the little boy, yes, son, he'll come. But his dad in his heart, and maybe he was a minister, I'm just not sure. 2,000 years, 1,000 Passovers. And one day the Lord Jesus, hosting a meal, stood up and he said, This is my body. And all that doubting was over. He'd come. This is the blood of my covenant. Now, we've had 2,000 Christmases and squillions of communions? What do we do when we gather around the Lord's table? This is my body. Whenever you eat of it, remember me. This is the blood of the new covenant. Whenever you drink of it, remember my death. And as you do so, proclaim the Lord's death till he comes again. How many times have we done that? How many Christmases have we celebrated? When we remember that Advent and think of that Advent to come, will He ever come? And underneath all these big doubts are the little doubts like, will I be raised from the dead? Will I get through my life in one piece? How will my life end? Will I get through this week? That's why this passage is so powerful. Now, that was the introduction. 24 minutes, but there's only 10 minutes left. Because you cannot hear this unless you understand that as I read Isaiah chapter 40, you will put your feet on all three mountain peaks. You will stand back on the first one. You'll stand back on the second. Your foot will touch the third. And one day you'll stand at the top of that third mountain. And at the top of that mountain will be Jesus Christ standing right in front of you, face to face. Now, let me run through the chapter again and show you what Isaiah has in his mind. And if you ever doubted the inspiration of Scripture, I think you could believe in Jesus' trust in God for lots of reasons, but there's enough, there's surely enough evidence that God must have inspired these words. You can't wriggle out of that unless they were written. Thousands of years after every historical source say they were written. You'd have to scrub the fact that other ancient historians refer to Isaiah, the book. You'd have to conclude that Isaiah was written after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. How absurd. God's message of comfort for his people, verses 1 to 11. He will pardon our iniquities. Comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity or her sins are pardoned. Is that a message of comfort when you're back in Jerusalem, peak 1? We've been through 70 years of the refinest fire in Babylon. We're back in Jerusalem. But it's really a reference to peak two. The second peak of fulfillment, the coming of Jesus and his death through which our sins might be forgiven. Isaiah kind of throws out that trailer in chapter 40. Comfort my people because her sins are forgiven. And by the time you get to Isaiah 53, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. He was without sin. And then the Lord Jesus quotes from Isaiah fifty three, as he is led like a lamb, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Christ Jesus died for our sins. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know, when you get a Christmas card and inside it's got comfort and joy, I mean, that's quite good, isn't it? You want to put in brackets under that, for now there is therefore no condemnation. For those, that's some comfort, isn't it? Some comfort, that as you sit here this morning, there is no condemnation in existence in the universe for you because Christ bore that condemnation When he died on the cross, all you need to do is come with empty hands and take the gift from under that very special Christmas tree shaped like this, not like that. Comfort, comfort, my people. He will... Reveal His glory, verses 3 to 5. A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill made low. If you're singing the Messiah, that's fine. Good old handle. The uneven ground shall become level, the rough places are plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed When was the glory of the Lord revealed? Peak one, when the temple was rebuilt. Little smidgen of glory. When Jesus Christ was born, what did the angels cry? What did the shepherds sing? Glory to God in the highest. When Jesus went up on the mountain of transfiguration, his glory, his eternal glory, was revealed to Peter, to James, and John, so that John the evangelist, could say in his gospel, chapter 1, we have seen his glory. You can see it as you read it by the Holy Spirit. Peak 2. And is it not also speak of peak 3 when you will stand at the top of that summit and you will look at the face of glory and you will be in glory. Glory is not a place. Glory is a presence. When I stand in glory, as we sing, when I stand in the eternal presence of God, I will see the face of glory, Jesus Christ. The messenger, of course, in verses 3 to 5, is John the Baptist, pointing to Jesus when he comes, pointing to Jesus When he returns again. Now, here's a a little encouragement that God keeps his promises. Isn't that good? Sally says, My promises are like pie crust, flaky. Well, from time to time, it's great that God keeps his promises. These verses are great. They're quite tough verses. You know, Isaiah's prophecy moves from power to tenderness, but this is the most powerful bit. It's kind of shaking his fist. If you, you, you Brahms, I think, if you're into classical music, Brahms, the bit in one of his oratorios on the word of the Lord stands forever, there's like a thousand trumpets going. It's kind of a big deal, yeah? A voice says, cry. What shall I cry? All flesh is grass. The beauty is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower, but the word of our God stands forever. That is a message of comfort for two reasons. One, that God will keep his promises. He said the exile would last 70 years, and it did. He said, I will take you to the top of that first mountain, and he did. He said the Messiah will come. There is another mountain with a cross at the top 500 years and he did. God said the Messiah will come again and he will. God will keep his word in the sense that God will keep his promises, but here's an even better thing. God will keep his word in the sense that his word is truth. In other words, he'll not just keep his promises, but his word in the Bible, the revelation of God, will never change, will never not be true, will never lose its power for salvation. Whatever culture says, please adapt God's Word to my time. How absurd that is. We'll touch on that with Mary's song tonight. Mary sings in tune with God, humbly, hungry. God will not change His Word. And that's good to remember when the church in our country is but a shadow of what it once was. If you change the word, that shadow will become nothing. And God will shepherd his flock, verses 9 to 11. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. What does that mean, peak one? Yep, he will gather them out of exile, and lead them back like a shepherd to Jerusalem. Peak two, the Lord Jesus. The Lord is my shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And how does the great shepherd, Psalm 23, end? And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The third peak of Isaiah's prophecy. Every psalm in the Old Testament lands on every mountain peak. Every prophecy in the Old Testament lands on every mountain peak. How could you doubt that is inspired? Now, time is rushing on. There are one million things to do this afternoon as this place is turned into whatever it's turned into. So outside there will be all sorts of people queuing up to come in and do their stuff. We'll just keep them a little longer. Because maybe you're not quite there yet in the sense that you still have doubts. You still have doubts that we'll ever scale that third peak. Even though we look back at the second peak Does God have the power to resurrect this earth? Does God have the power to break open every grave and raise the dead? Does God have the power to turn this sad world into a place where there are no tears and no sickness and no pain and no death and no mourning? The answer is wonderful in Isaiah 40, verses 12 to 17. Does God have the power beyond all measure? Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord? Whom did God consult? Did God stoop down and say, gather together a group of professors of physics, mathematics, astronomy, the arts, and help me gather some knowledge? That might sound absurd to you, but that's how most of humanity thinks. My conception of God, what an absurd nonsense. Who taught him justice? Did God gather together the best legal minds in the world through all of history? I always remember Lord Mackay, the Lord Chancellor, reading out this verse, In some event in public life, who taught God justice? Is it powerful? All the nations there is nothing before him. I was glad Rog, when he prayed, mentioned nations by name. Scotland is like a drop in a bucket. And so to the Christians in Scotland, don't fret too much or England or whatever country you're from, or the country you're going to, that you couldn't really tell us which one it was because it's too dangerous. It's like a drop in a bucket. So you're safe, 100%. Beyond all comparison, let's skip that bit. Beyond all rivals. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One, Lift up your eyes on high and see who created things. Now, many of you are deeply concerned about me walking at night in the hills with a dog. Here is the reason I do it, biblical justification. He who brings out their host by number, calling them by name, by his greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. It's good for your soul to walk in the hills and look at the stars. So there you go. What a glorious section of Scripture giving us confidence in our God. And how does he end? How does it end? It's such a powerful thing, God's Word. It always ends where you want. If you're a preacher and you're trying to, to live in God's Word and trying to preach it, very often as I get older and you know, with, it, with years of preaching, what I long often for God's Word to say when I look out on a congregation that I love and know, I long for it to say what it usually says. It's almost like it, it needs now to say to you, yes, you've got your head around this marvelous, majestic God, but you need to know that He cares for you. The transcendence of God needs to become the imminence of God. He needs to be here with you where you sit, old and young, fearful, anxious, worried. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? Now, listen to what follows, and is this not what we often say? Yes, I get this wonderful chapter in Isaiah but my way is hidden from the Lord. My right is disregarded by my God. What about me? God. Because these 500-year spans in salvation history of waiting, we know as humans, don't we, what it's like to wait on the Lord? Where are you, God? Or why is Christmas such a terribly bleak time for me? Have you not known? Have you not heard? Isaiah almost whispers, The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. You may have grown faint and weary, but he never does. Some of the Psalms touch on this very powerfully. as you wake in the watches of the night. You know, they are the worst times, aren't they, between 2 and 5 a.m. if you're awake with all manner of doubts and thoughts going through your head. God's never asleep. Can you trust him? Yes, because he is faithful. Yes, because he is powerful. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, he increases strength and he is compassionate. Even youths shall faint and be weary. Now, this is a word for this service. Not everyone here is youthful, but many of you are. And let me tell you what you know, that even youths grow tired and weary, and young men and women stumble and fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength, They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. So where does this chapter end? This chapter off the back of the prophecy of exile. This chapter that has taken us to the very heights of heaven, to the mountain peaks of salvation history, to the cross, to the reign of Christ for all eternity. Where does it end? Tomorrow morning, wherever you are, tomorrow afternoon, whatever you are doing, they shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and never faint. Happy Christmas. It really is, isn't it? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for these marvellous words. Marvellous words of comfort and consolation and hope. We pray, Lord, that they would have comforted every soul here. Others listening. Folks from the first service. And we pray, Lord, that if we are outside of your comfort because we haven't come humbly to Jesus Christ, Help us, Lord, this Christmas. Help us this very minute to reach out with empty hands to Jesus Christ and receive all the blessings of salvation. Too numerous to count. Endless eternity with Jesus on that mountain peak in the new creation. And that day will come. We pray that we will all be there for Jesus' sake. Amen.